description. Now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 65. Isaiah chapter 65. And this morning, I know some of you wanted to get to the millennium today, but we're not quite there this morning. That's in the last half of the chapter, so you'll have to come back for next week for that. Uh, But this is the first part of the uh, chapter 65 of Isaiah. So let's stand together and hear uh, the first 16 verses of Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 verses 1 through 16. Let's, let's hear God's word now. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walked in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are the smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. And thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it. And my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for God, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes." And chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart. And wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. For the Lord God will slay you. And call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes. And all of God's people said, Amen. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken it to us. Give us ears to hear this morning. Give us a faith to receive it. And Father, we pray that we'd rejoice in these great truths. Father, you would give us the the spirit, the Holy Spirit of joy and peace this morning. This would be a reviving message uh, to us, a reviving message uh, to your people. We come more alive uh, to your truth. We have more confidence in the promises that you've given us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. As always, you feel the intensity of the prophetic message, don't you? Anybody feel it? I mean, it just comes through, right? It's like a hammer. comes in hard. There are different ways to handle prophecy. 
And I, I just want to give this on the front end because, you know, buckle your seatbelts, right? Be ready. This is God's word coming hard and fast. So how are you going to receive the prophetic message? Well, there are different ways in which people have received the prophetic message. One way is to kill the prophet. That's one reaction that has been actually popular, <laughs> sadly. Um, they, they kill the messenger, I guess you would say. In fact, was it Stephen or Jesus that said, which of the prophets did you forget to kill? You know, you killed so many of the prophets. Um, and that's the point at which they killed Stephen. So one more prophet, you know, put, put one more on the list, right? So, so one way is to kill the prophets. So you can just kill the prophet. The, um, the, the second uh, way is to just ignore the bad news. Because the prophets give us bad news and good news. There's intensity to both sides of it. You could ignore the bad news. Or here's another problem. To focus on the bad news and sort of embrace the message of the bad news. But, but ignore the good news. In other words, you feel, you feel the conviction. I think sometimes people do say, you know, oh, pastor, preacher, prophet. Man, I was so convicted. You know, the word of God just convicted me, and I, I'm really concerned about that. Why would that concern me? They've received the thrust of the sword of God's word, but they never really got the good news. As I see it, as you hear the word, the good news is, is, the, is, is the capstone. It's the, the ultimate push. It's the hallelujah at the end of the message. There, you know, there has to be the morning, yes, but then the rejoicing. So those that get stuck on the bad news. In other words, the convicting message stands out and they felt the steal the sword push into them but they didn't really receive the gospel message they 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 didn't leave going you know hallelujah that's a concern as well now you can you can also hate the bad news but never embrace the good news in other words you don't embrace either one or you can accept the bad news and accept the good news and say wow this is the message from god Amen and amen to all of this. And that's the way to do it. Exclamation mark on every verse. Yes. Amen to every part of the message. Well, this passage is a little bit of a parallel passage to Romans 10. We read Romans 10 just earlier. And uh, Paul refers to this passage in Romans 10 verses 1 and 2. And that's in the context of God's rejection of the Jews and his engrafting of the Gentiles into the olive tree. Now, the problem with the Jews went back 1,400 years. So you had a virtually nonstop problem with the Jews all the way back to the Exodus. And remember the rejection of God's word in the wilderness. So it would have been more like 1,440 or somewhere around there. The, 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 the disobedience, the rejection the people of God, of God and his word, goes all the way back 1,440 years. So it's a long time, a very long time. 
very hard to minister in a church where you get that kind of pushback for 1,440 years. How would you like to be that pastor? You know, that'd be a little bit of a bummer. That'd be a big bummer, if you know what I'm saying. Um, But now, Isaiah is prophesying this 700 years before Paul writes. So the problem most definitely was there 700 years beforehand. And there's this ongoing hardness of heart and apostasy of God's people. Very hard, very difficult, extremely difficult. Uh, But then Paul warns the European Gentiles in Rome of pride and the distinct possibility of Gentiles following exactly the pattern of the Jews. So again, Paul's Paul's follow-up to the warning to the Jews is, you Gentiles don't get so haughty and proud and you know too bad for those Jews, but but you yourselves you know take the warning and be humble. And I believe this is this is the root problem uh, with the breakdown of the Christian faith in Europe and America to some extent is that um, Christians became too proud, too much pride. So. So these warnings apply just as much today as they did back then. All right, so this message is about three groups of people. Three groups of people. And Paul refers to these three groups as well in Romans chapter 10 and chapter 11. So these are the three groups of people. And so we have the apostate Jews, the remnant Jews, and a new class of peoples that is the Gentile world, the European Gentile world that Paul is writing to in the book of Romans. And to a lesser extent, I would say, the other Gentiles around the world. So the first and foremost uh, immediate application that Paul is, is bringing to bear in Romans 10 is the Romans, which is the Europeans, which is us, mostly us. Okay. So let's look at each of these. And children, the first is the Gentiles. So that's, that would be on your list. These are the, the Gentiles, the first group of people are the Gentiles. Verse 1, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. In fact, I said, here I am, but here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. So who are these people? Well, Paul refers to these as the European Gentiles. These are people who are not called. Now, who are the called? The called are the ecclesia of God, whether it be the ecclesia of the Old Testament or New Testament, either way, ecclesia is the church. So when we say ecclesia, it's the word for church, and what is a church? But the called out ones, you know, the word ecclesia is called from, ek is from, klesia is called, so called out, called from, that's the word ecclesia, that's the word for church. So, so this people are the ecclesia. So there are those who have been called out, and then there are those who have not been called out. There are those who are meeting together as God's people. They have the name of God on them. And then there are those who do not have the name of God on them. So this is what we call covenant theology. Um, the, The church of Jesus Christ is a true group of people. It's a visible covenant people of God. And there are some who are not even called by God's name. Now, the other two categories of these people in this passage are those who are members of the ecclesia. So those two, two groups of people that we're going to get into are in the ecclesia, and these folks are not in the ecclesia. They're not the called out people of God. These were the people that were not the family of God. They were not the covenant people of God. They did not live in God's house, and they were not called by his name. And 
So yet God is calling them here. God is saying, here I am, here I am. So there's a calling, there's a drawing, there's a seeking that we find uh, for the Gentiles here in this passage. They didn't even know his name. And yet Paul describes uh, these folks in Acts chapter 17 and verse 27. They should seek the Lord, he said, in the hope that they might grope after him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. So this is Paul's announcement uh, to the Greeks on Mars Hill. Uh, He's saying that there is some groping after God, and yet they're not sure what they are looking for. It's interesting, Romans 3.11 says, there is none that seeks after God, and that's true. And I believe if you reconcile these two passages, you have to conclude that there is some blindness such that they do not know what it is that they're seeking after. They know something is wrong, they know something is missing, and I think everybody in the world knows that there's something wrong and there's something missing, and yet they're still blind. It's as if, and I think this is the best illustration I can come up with, when you walk into a dark room, what do you typically do? You know, say, at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, uh, you walk into a dark room, what does your hand usually do? Children, what do you do when you walk into a room, a dark room? What am I doing right now? What is my hand doing? I'm groping for what? For a light switch, exactly. And that, that's what the Gentiles are doing. They're groping for a light switch. So that, they're, they're not sure what it is. You see, they've walked into a dark room, they recognize some degree of darkness, and they, they, are, they are seeking after something, but they have no idea what, what it is. Uh, they cannot imagine there to be a creator. They look at the world. They do not immediately see the creator. They see chaos and disorder. That's why most of the pagans are polytheists. And what are polytheists? So polytheistic worldview is what? There is no unity to that worldview. It's a chaos. So you, their, their art will depict that as well. Their music will be a, a pretty chaotic. Uh, there usually isn't much of a unity to the music itself, uh, which is what happens when we begin to degrade into polytheistic are pluralistic nations, and that's where we are today. We have many gods uh, today. But this, this, is, this is where they are. They live in a, a, a chaotic world. There's not a oneness to the world. Why? Why is there not a oneness to the world? Why is there just a manyness and a chaos to the world itself? Why is that? Because there is no one God. There is no unity. They are only polytheists, you see. And so this, this is what, where people are by nature Africans, Asians, Amazon tribes, they look at their hands and they say, strange, an accident, not sure how it came about, but they believe in demons and spirits, lesser gods, etc., entirely deceived as to the existence of the true and living God. So, and it's, of course, the devil, the, the devils themselves that blind them to any of these truths. So they are very far away, and that's how God presents this group of people. They're very far away. And uh, yet they, they eventually find God. So how do they find him? Well, it's that God is looking for them. It's not that they are looking for God as much as God is looking for them. And so these folks have found God in AD 485 through the ministry of Patrick in Ireland. They found him in the Himalayas in the year 2010 as Purpua Sherpa, who is, uh, you know, uh, 20, 30 generations of Buddhists uh, in that area of the country, uh, working his way up Everest, a Buddhist monk, a Sherpa, uh, certainly, you know, committed to the Buddhist faith, and uh, somebody slips him a Bible, and he reads the Bible and becomes an evangelist. So somehow, uh, God finds him 
on the slopes of Everest. Uh, they find him in the Amazonian jungles. They find him in the moralistic, tyrannical cities of the Chinese communists and legalists. Uh, but they find him. The point is they find him. Now, here is how it works. They grope after him. They sense a vacuum. They sense something is missing. They begin to sense something of their own misery, their lostness, their blindness. They wonder if there is such a thing as sight. And then they seek something, but they don't know what they're seeking. And then what happens is God comes to them. He grabs them by the hand, and they find him. He calls them who are afar off. Uh, Only then do they know uh, what they were seeking after. And they've come to find the true and the living God. Okay, so that's the first class or first group of people uh, that we look at this day. Now, the second are the apostate people, those who are turning away from the Lord. So children, these are those who are turning away from the Lord, but they are also members of the church. So they're members of the ecclesia. They have the name of God on them, and um, so God is speaking to them in this passage, beginning with verse 2, which is quoted in Romans chapter 10. And what does it say? It says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. So as the word of God is brought by the prophets, uh, God is calling to them. He's stretching out his hands to them. And yet they are hard, so, so very hard as they sit and listen to the word of God that comes to them by the prophets. Um, so who are these folks? What are they doing? Well, they're, they're compromised. They're synthesized. They're... Uh, They're conforming to the world. They're worshiping false gods. That's verse 3. Verse 4 is a little bit confusing, so let me just spend a moment with uh, verse 4. So take a look at verse 4. Here we find that this group of people contaminate themselves with sinful things or ceremonially unclean things. The food laws and the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to eat vultures. Now, even today, I wouldn't caution you about eating vultures, but they didn't want you eating vultures. Um... Not too many Americans eat vultures, but, uh, but you weren't supposed to eat vultures, and you weren't supposed to be like laying on dead bodies all night long. You weren't supposed to be doing that kind of thing. Now, again, I would advise you not to go into a morgue and ask for a couple of dead bodies so you can lay on top of a dead body for the next two or three nights. I just would caution you about that sort of thing, and I, I think most people would agree with that. That's probably not a wise thing to do. Uh, But this is the sort of uh, picture that is given to us in the Old Testament. Now, it turns out that uh, that 2 Corinthians 6 has something to say about not touching the unclean thing and uh, interprets it to be the fellowship with unbelievers. That is, coming into close communion, not with a vulture, uh, not with a dead body, not coming into close communion with a dead body, but fellowshipping with unbelievers, Uh, fellowshipping with their media, close communion with their intellectual rebellion against God, or communion or fellowship with their opposition to God's law, or lawlessness is the word that's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Coming into close fellowship, the word is fellowship, or koinonia, by participating in their symbols, which is food offered to idols, taking on their symbols, their musical symbols that are closely identified with evil things which could include certain forms of music, uh, of certain music forms as well, uh, as far as they are attached to, as far as they are attached to the ideas that are promulgated uh, using those forms in the world around us. Uh, so, so any kind of symbols that are closely identified with evil things, taking on their language, their mannerisms, their jokes, their sarcastic forms of humor, their general irreverence, hilarity, and lack of sobriety, and so forth. So these are the sorts of things uh, that are considered to be 
um, a, a means by which God's people are taken away, taken astray, uh, taking on the symbols of accoutrements or attitudes or dress that tie into homosexuality, effeminacy for men, and transgenderism, these sorts of things. This is how we not participate in the standards or the symbols or have fellowship with the ungodly. We have to be ever so careful, especially in an ungodly society where the symbols are very strong and the worldview is sold to us everywhere all around us. They contaminate themselves with these things. And this fellowship or this communion is so dangerous because it's, it's just simply like eating the vulture. Or it's like uh, hanging out with a dead body with all the maggots and such that crawl uh, on top of you and crawl into your mouth and down into your stomach and such. That's the sort of thing that you really don't want to happen very much. The reason for that is because as you're contaminated, you are contaminated not with a disease so much as with sin. You have to be ever so cautious not to be contaminated and drag these things into your body or into the body of Christ or the church of Christ. And that's why the warnings so severe in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 against this fellowship and this eating of food offered to idols. Does the world contaminate us? Yes, the world tends to contaminate like a disease. It spreads like a disease very often through a compromised people of God. Okay, now verse 5 gets, gets to another problem uh, with this group of people, and that is hypocrisy, and it almost treated as the worst crime of them all. Verse 5, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. So these are people who are lying on dead bodies, eating vulture meat and all the rest. Um, but now keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. That's verse 5. So again, th- these folks are, have the holier-than-thou sort of attitude. And immediately I thought of Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11 here, where you have an, an attitude of young revolutionaries, very common in our day-to-day, especially in the last, say, 120 years or so, since the 1870s and 1880s, especially in Russia and Germany. Young revolutionaries come home from college, to inform their parents they have become woke, environmentalist, communist, anti-American, whatever it is, but always better than the previous generation. This is Proverbs 30 and verse 11. They're much holier than that, holier than their parents, holier than their grandparents. Proverbs 30 verse 11, there is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. Now listen, this is the attitude of these young revolutionaries. It's a generation pure in their own eyes, yet is not washed from their own filthiness. The generation, how lofty are their eyelids? Their eyelids lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor off the earth. So this is the sort of thing that has come to destroy the world. Typically, this happens to revolution, and it has happened to destroy so many countries already. But the, but, but, but the bottom line with these is they're just holier-than-thou kind of people. You know, they, 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 they're washed... Uh, from their own uh, sin, from their own eye, in their own eyes, and yet they're not washed. Um, they are flaming hypocrites. They break every one of God's laws with impunity and then set out to save the world with their far-fetched social theories and so forth. Now, there are other forms of this holier-than-thou or hypocritical attitude as well. I'll just throw these out to you because uh, th- this is the sort of thing that constitutes a uh, hypocritical uh, type of people that come out of the Western world. Uh, today. Here's another picture. I think any of us can give way to these forms of hypocrisy, so let's be careful. We'll just not push pointing fingers at everybody else here. 
There's, there's the hypocritical church fellow who dresses well, refused to drink alcohol, argues with every other Christian from other denominations about which translation of the Bible to use or some minor detail concerning the Sabbath, and yet he's not converted. He's just not converted himself. He doesn't mourn over his own sin. He hides his deepest sins, which are usually sexual in nature, or it's coveting or envying or worshiping money or enslaved uh, to his own anger. So that's the kind of hypocrisy that is so incredibly common among conservative or perhaps even liberal churches or whatever it is. But whatever uh, kind of hypocrite we're talking about here, it is exactly what Jesus pointed out in Matthew 23 when he said the Pharisees were like whitewashed sepulchers. That is, they were self-righteous. They were proud of their own self-righteousnesses, and yet they were not washed from their own sin. They were not dependent upon Christ for his righteousness. And I just give you a couple of random examples of this. Now, this is the way hypocrisy works, and this is the way that we see uh, apostasy working its way out of the church, whether it be the Jews or the Gentiles. All right. But God's view of all of this, uh, look at verses, uh, the end of verse 5, 6, and then 7. God's view of this is uh, just, he's, uh, he's very irritated by it. Just intolerable for him. Very irritated. Listen to how irritated God is with all these people. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Uh, behold, have you ever stood in front of a barbecue pit and just kind of breathed in the smoke all day long? Uh, not very much fun. That's, that's the picture given here. Um, behold, it's written before me. I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay to their bosom your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. So, brothers and sisters, I mean, this is the church. It's been the church in the Old Testament, tends to be the church throughout the ages to some extent or another. The tares, the wheat, the goats, the sheep, you know, they... They tend to be together to some extent. Uh, the goats, the tares, finding fellowship in the world. They think they're pretty good folks. And they think they're better than others, but they are uh, hypocrites. So may God save us from these sort of hypocrisies. And, of course, the self-deception, the thing that scares me the most, I think, um, is always self-deception. You know, am I deceiving myself in any way? And to, to have a humility such that you're entirely dependent upon God, upon His Word, upon the Holy Spirit, upon Jesus, uh, to, to save us and to preserve us and to cry out, cleanse thou me from secret faults. I think we were talking about that verse last week uh, in fellowship. But, yet, you know, search me, O God. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I mean, that, that's it for all of us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That's it. I mean, we look to God to help us. We don't even know all our secret faults. And so we, we just cry out to God, rely upon Him for His salvation. And, uh, and, and yet, you know what? God does save Pharisees. And I, I was thinking about this uh, while I was meditating on this passage. That uh, think of the Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, like the number one Pharisee in AD 35 or whatever it was. The number one, the guy who got all the badges First Phariseeism, you know, he, he worked through all the programs and he got all his little Pharisee Boy Scout badges and he got all of them. He's the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And remember what happened to him on the road uh, to Damascus? You know, God stopped him in his tracks and Jesus was right there and, 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 and challenged him and, and, and ultimately you know, struck him to blindness. And then Paul was amazingly converted there and uh, eventually became the greatest preacher against Phariseeism, against this hypocrisy and self-righteousness, 
All the self-righteousness, dirty rags, filthy rags, have nothing to do with it. That was his response to it in Philippians chapter 3. So now let's get on to the good news. All right, so, so these were the two categories of those that were in trouble, one of which is saved, uh, called out by God, and then uh, the second, of course, uh, those that are under the judgment of God, the discipline of God uh, in, among the people of God. So now the third category of people, children, are those who are seeking God. Those who are seeking God. The previous category... Uh, being those that were running away from God, resisting God, those that would have nothing to do with God, uh, those that were turning away from the Lord. So the word would be turning away from the Lord. And now we come to the third category of persons of those who are seeking God. These are the people who are seeking God, and this comes uh, through verses 8 to 16. Now, if you look at verse 8, very interesting verse here, in which we find uh, the Lord saying, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for the blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake. Now, what's really good about this is that this is a good picture of the church. The church is referred to as a cluster. Now, what is a cluster? Have you ever, have you ever eaten grapes before you buy grapes at the grocery store? The grapes typically come uh, all taken off of the little vine, right? No, that's not how you buy grapes. For the most part, it's on the little vine thing, isn't it? And typically when you buy the grapes, there's always two or three that, that you leave for your brother or sister. No, I'm kidding. Uh, there are two or three grapes that you're not going to eat. And they're the little shriveled up ones. If you taste them, they're going to be sour. They're going to be kind of gross. And uh, so you're not going to eat the two or three grapes. Uh, typically, there's always two or three bad grapes on the little vine or in the little cluster. And so that is the church. And whenever you get a little cluster of grapes, say, this is like the church. It's exactly the same kind of language as Jesus uses when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Exactly the same as the olive tree. Exactly the same as all the other organic examples that are used for the church. We are a connected people uh, on this little cluster of grapes. And God is not going to destroy the cluster of grapes uh, there may be a few that are shriveled up and such, but the bottom line is it's a visible church, and these shriveled up little grapes are covenantally connected to the vine. They're, they're part of the body. They're part of the olive tree. They haven't been severed yet. God severs them at points, and there's church discipline at points as well, but the bottom line is the covenant, and whether they're all little shriveled up grapes that are going to be plucked out or severed by the vine dresser or whatever it is, um, we are... We are baptized into the visible church, and when we're baptized in the visible church, we're part of the, the, the cluster. Well, you say there's, there's bad grapes in the cluster. Yes, that's, that's the point. It's the point of all scripture. We're talking about that. All the analogies relating to the church is all about how there's a few bad grapes in the cluster. There's some bad branches that don't bear fruit, etc., etc. So all the way through scripture you have that. So, of course, we're going to be baptized into the church, and we'll baptize our entire family into the church, because household baptisms are entirely part of the New Testament church, no problem. And you say, yeah, but there'll be some unbelievers in the church. There have always been unbelievers in the church. Uh, a, a very high percentage, if not, you know, 80, 90, 95, 97, 99, 99.999% of people in the Old Testament church were not believers. They died in the wilderness. This is what happens. The church is made up of true believers and some unbelievers. And that's, that's the way it's always been. And that's the point made here in this passage. 
Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah as an heir of my mountains, and my elect shall inherit it, my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down, for my people have sought me. So here's the promise of God's people, having a place, having a church, having a place, having a fold, being in the mountain, being in the church, being part of the body of Christ. This is the message that is brought in these verses here in Isaiah 65. Now, who are these people? Seven descriptions. Let me just go over them briefly. Seven descriptions. They are the elect of God. They are the servants of God. They are those who remember the holy mountain as they remember the church. They always remember the church. The church plays a big part in their lives. There are those who do not worship false gods, which is Gad and many. Apparently, these are a couple of false gods that showed up around that period of time. They don't worship Gad. They don't worship this many guy. There are also, number five, those who hear the call of God and listen to God's word. Number six, there are those who choose the things that God finds delightful. And then number seven, there are those who seek after God. So these are the descriptions of the true people of God within the church of God. And I want to focus in on what I would call the core of all of this, and I believe it is, the theme of this chapter. Because we begin with the the Gentiles are kind of seeking but not seeking. God seeks them, they wind up seeking him. So we start with that, and then we see that the the people of God has resisted God. They've turned away from God. They no longer want to seek after God. And then we come to the remnant, and these are those who do seek after God. So even within the church, there are those who seek God and those who do not seek God. And I believe this is the very core of the message this morning, so I want to really focus in on this for the last few minutes of this message. So what is this? What is it to seek after God? These are those who are drawn to God. They love God. They're, they're looking to God. They, they, they every morning wakes up and they say, where is God? I, I need to come into the presence of God. I need God to come. I, I need to know God. I, I've, I've heard about him with the ear. I want to see him with the eye. There are those who are drawn in. They've heard a little bit in the message. Something that seems attractive to them. They say, this is something good for me. It's something I really want to know more about. I've, I've heard about him with the ear, but I want to see him with the eye. And they're drawn in. They're attractive. There's an attraction to God among these people. So if you are a true believer, you're attracted to God. You're seeking out God. You want to find out more about God. They understand their need for God as well. They seek him with all their heart. They honestly come to the conclusion that nothing will satisfy but the presence and pleasure of God. Now, when they have a choice between seeking this or that, okay, they're seeking worldly pleasure, seeking after more money, entertainment, affirmation of others, etc., or God, which is it? Which is it that draws them in more than anything else? Is it these little paltry things that the world gives, or is it God, the source of all good things? When they have a choice between the gift or the giver, there are times at which, you know, God gives us many good gifts, but then there's a little bit of a test that we're given in our lives. You want this gift or the giver? Do you want to focus in on the gift, and the gift is the main thing in your life, or would you rather turn back to the giver? Is the giver the one that really matters more than anything else? You have that, uh, that spirit of the psalmist who says, my soul thirsts after God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Again, there's the real folks that are seeking God and those that aren't seeking God, even within the established church. And, and so the idea of seeking after God, thirsting after God, 
coming back to God. If you've been in a little bit of wilderness time, maybe you've spent a little bit too much time in the entertainment scene, been on vacation, skipped family worship four or five times because of all the baubles of the world and all the attractions of the world. Your heart says, oh, now wait a minute, we haven't been in the Word for the last two days. And you're drawn back into Word and prayer. Is that the way it is with you? Are you one who seeks after God and delights in God? So, but what is it to seek? What is this seeking? How does one seek after God? Well, let me say this. When somebody's been missing, you know, looking for somebody, you know, let's say you're at some big convention or something, you lose some of your children, um, you sort of scan the crowd for the child, and you eliminate some people. You say, no, no, they're not over there, so we're going to look over here. Didn't see them there, so I'm going to look over there now. So when you're looking for somebody, you're, you're scanning the crowd, okay? I'm, I'm trying to explain to you what it is to, to seek, to look. What, what is it to look? So this is the very core of the Christian faith. If you're a believer, this is what you're doing. This is the warp and the whoop. This is every day. This is who you are as a Christian. This is you, this is you as a believer in Jesus. You're, you're seeking, you're looking for God. Now, typically we're looking for somebody we love as well. So there's something of an attraction or affinity for that person that's missing. Like if it's a child, it's not like any children. We see a lot of children running around Sam's Club. But we're looking for a specific child. And so, so we eliminate some. We're looking for the, the child we're, we're, we're interested in. A spouse, say, who has not seen her husband for two and a half years, he's gone off to the military or what have you. Um, she's looking for him. She's, she's checking everybody coming off the train. She scans for him. She, she runs to him. She, now, there's times at which we don't really know exactly who we're looking for. If we've been separated from God or we separated from a person for a very long time. What do you do? You kind of have a vague notion or perhaps... Uh, Perhaps the man's been on a, uh, an island with a soccer ball for, you know, seven years or something like that. Um, and so you just got news, you know, he's coming on the train. Not sure, you know, exactly, you know, he's probably got like a bum with a lot of hair, you know, coming down his face and all this. So not exactly sure what he looks like, right? So there's this tentative moment. So I'm trying to explain what it looks like when you've been far away from God and perhaps you this morning are thinking, I'm actually a little bit attracted to God. I, I do want to come back into worship. I want to know something more about God, but it's been a while. You're not really sure what it looks like. So you've got to have some conception of what you're looking for if you're going to find Him. This is one of the, the issues that comes to play, because you're not going to run out and hug every bum that's come off the island you know, in the train station, right? And that's not going to happen. So what I'm saying is you have to have some conception of what you're looking for if you're going to seek after God. Again, this is the very core of what it is uh, to be a believer in God, believer in Jesus. So, so you've got to know something about God that, that actually draws you in and, and brings you to Him because you delight in that thing uh, that, that you've learned of Him. Now, it turns out that seeking also requires a bit of effort. So, so that's the next point going through how to seek after God. So the next point is, it does require a bit of effort, which means what? Which means that you're going to have to set this as a priority. It needs to be something of a single-mindedness. Typically, a mother who's lost a child is probably fairly single-minded, especially, you know, the child is running around the grocery store or whatever in a big crowd down at the fair, and she's looking for the child. She's probably not going to take a break and go to the bathroom. 
Um, especially if it's kind of a, a key moment, like this is really critical. She's got to go find him. So there is this diligence about the seeking. Proverbs 8 and verse 17, those who diligently seek me will find me. This is the picture of, of wisdom and Jesus, of course, personified. Those who diligently seek me will find me. Or Jeremiah 29 verse 13 as well, you will seek me and find me. But how is this done? When you seek me with all your heart, there is the single-mindedness in the seeking. Very important. And, and Jesus brings this out in several parables in Matthew chapter 13. The treasure hidden in the field. Man sells everything that he has and buys the field. Same thing with the pearl of great price. Again, the merchant looking for the pearl of great price sells everything he had to buy it. There has to be... If we're going to seek after God... This has to be the highest value we're seeking after. Sometimes seeking involves a weeping for God, a missing God, an aching for God. And there are points at which God's presence is held back from us because we need a period of time in which we, we grow in our anticipation, our, our eagerness to, to see Him, to, to know Him more. So Psalm 42, my tears have been my meat day and night. While they continually say unto me, where is thy God? So how do we, how do we find him? How do we seek after him? Well, we go where he is. We go to church. He's present in the church. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst. We come to church. We come to communion. We come in prayer. Now, how, let me make this even more simple for the children. How do you find somebody in a crowd? So a little child this weekend you know, crying. I was talking to one of the coordinators and a little three-year-old just crying, where's my mommy? In Portuguese. I mean, you know exactly what he's saying. I'm not, I don't need to translate, right? It's like, ah, you know, crying. And uh, the coordinator's wife picked him up and started, you know, finding his parents, whatever it was. So what do you do? What do you do when you're finding, when you're looking for, when you're seeking after somebody? What do you do? Children? Yeah, Exactly. I was like a five-year-old that said that. No, it was one of the adults. But amen. Amen. We call out, right? That's what we do. We call out. So, so how do you find? You go where God is. You cry out to God. Again, it's, it's do you want him or not? Jesus said, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. No, but if you're knocking is like kind of looking for you, not really into this, not really desirous of this, God, are you out there somewhere? Or, God, I need you. God, come to me. God, reveal yourself to me. I want to see you today. Oh, God, be here. Be with me. Comfort me. Turn your face back to me and show me your love. I, I got to know this. This is the highest value in my life. God, come. I need you now. That's different, isn't it? That's calling out to God. Tozer, in pursuit of God, speaks of the faint knock. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is the result of our lack of holy desire for Christ. Is there any stiff and wooden quality 
about your relationship with God, about your prayer life? Is anything stiff and wooden? Is that you? Acute desire, acute intense desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. And instead our programs, methods, organizations, a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. The shallowness of our inner experience, the hollowness of our worship, that servile imitation of the world which marks our promotional methods all testify that we in this day know God only imperfectly and the peace of God scarcely at all. Is there something there that you desire? Is there anything that I've been talking about this morning that you desire? Something attractive? Something like, yeah? Yes, I am drawn to this. I want to know God. I want to know more of Him. I'm drawn to Him. I believe it's important to question the authenticity or the reality of this relationship we have with God at the, at the core. And we're at the core right now. This is the, this is the core, not a tertiary matter. And I think for any denomination, we, we ask ourselves, how is our church doing? How are denomination doing? How are the Assemblies of God's doing? How is the Lutheran church? How is the Harvest doing down the street? How are the Southern Baptists doing? Do they seek after God? Do, do they hunger and thirst after the living God? Do they love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength? That's the question. That's the core question. Yes, you love God with your mind, and you're going to study more of Him, and you know, all these other things. But love God with your heart. Love God with your life, with your, with your, your actions, your will, your, your strength, everything in you. Loving God, seeking after God, wanting to be where God is. Why, why, why are seeking so half-hearted? Well, I think some people say this, and I've heard this before. I love my wife. I just don't really like her. What? Right? What? That, like, that's a what, right? I love my wife. I just don't really like to be around her. I mean, that's, that, that, that's an ouch, right? What is, what, what is that? What, you love God, just don't really like him? Don't really like his people, don't want to be where he is. Seems contradictory to me. In this passage, God is very concerned that the people are rejecting him, that they are not seeking after him. This seems to be the core concern of God. They're not putting energies into seeking himself. They're putting their energies into seeking everything else. That seems to be consuming a lot of their time. God wants us to seek Him. Now, here's another thing. I think your friends can tell when you're pulling back. If you haven't called a friend in six months or they text you and you don't text back like for two weeks, what do you think your friend is thinking? By the way, this is, I'm beginning to understand texting. You know, I, I was the guy who wasn't texting you back after two weeks. I just, it took me some time, so there's a learning curve here for some of those old guys. But, but you don't text a friend for two weeks. What is your friend thinking? What's he thinking? You're like, yeah, you don't care about me. You don't, you don't really care about me. You're, 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 you're drifting away from me. Your heart isn't with me. 
You're not seeking after me. And therefore, of course, usually your friend doesn't seek much more after you. And so let me ask you this. You think God is relational? Like we are relational, right? We, we sense. I'm guessing beetles, you know, don't miss each other. I don't know. Do beetles miss each other? They bump into each other and then they don't see each other for the next six days. They're probably okay with that. But, but we're relational, right? We're relational people. We know, we know when people are pulling back from us. God is relational. God knows when you're pulling back. God knows when you're wandering away. God knows when you're not paying attention to his word. You don't really care. You're not seeking him. He can tell. It's the same. It's, this is the core of the core of the matter for the Christian in relationship with God. So why would we seek after God? Let me just answer the question very simply. Because we're drawn to him. Because we find something in him that's likable. Why are you drawn to a friend? You like your friend. Why do you like your friend? Well, I don't know. There's stuff you like about him, I guess. I don't know. Why do you, why do you like your husband? You know, why do you like your wife? Just, do you like to be together? And you just like each other. It's kind of hard to get to it, but you definitely want to be with each other, and you want to talk to each other, and you're drawn into each other. It's just Sometimes I don't think we can put our, our hands on all the issues, but I love my wife's smile. I still do. I see her smiling over there. I'm like, I want to go over and give her a hug right now, but I can't because I'm preaching. Um, but see, that's it. We're drawn into something. God is likable. God is lovable. We appreciate these things about God. Moreover, we find some value in his favor when he begins to favor us. There's benefit to his presence. There's benefit to, to, to what he gives to us when we become friends with God. It's, it's a great thing. We have a good time. It's a joyful experience. Amen? With God. Amos 5 and verse 4, another really interesting verse. I've never seen this one before. Amos 5 and verse 4 says, Seek me that you may live. Seek me that you may live. Now it's like saying, Breathe that you will live. I was thinking of an analogy of the guy under the water, you know, under the ocean. Let's say you're surfing and you go under and you've been under for about 15, 20 seconds, rolling around under the wave. After a while, you kind of want to come up for air. Isn't that right? I mean, Anybody ever been underwater where after a while you want to come up for air? Yeah, that's the analogy I see, is that we need to come up for air. We got, we got to go seek God that we would live. That's the analogy that struck me. So this scripture here, it's either we will seek God's favor or receive God's anger. I think that's the message that comes out of this passage this morning. Either, either we seek God's favor and re, or receive God's anger I mean, duh, right? Which one do you want? Let's seek his favor. It's just that simple. Zephaniah 2 and verse 3 well, as well. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. Just seek the Lord who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Seek the Lord. Just seek him. Now, why would we love God? Because he loved us first. And we've gone over this. Praise God. I think the, the exhortation here is... is, is coming in dovetailing with what Brother Josh Wieso gave to us this morning. God is the ideal of love. God is the ideal of everything attractive. God is the ideal in the universe of everything likable, impressive, relatable, attractive, and glorious. Think about it. God is ultimately wise when you need wisdom. He is ultimately merciful when you need mercy. He is ultimately loving. Anybody want to be loved? 
Anybody want to be loved? I mean, you know, what human being on planet Earth says, well, I don't need any love. I don't need no stinking love. You ever hear anybody say that? I, people don't say that. They, we, we, we absolutely need love. We need to be loved. If you haven't been loved in a relationship, that's hard. That's tough. Amen? But you want to be loved? God is the source of all love. God's generous when you need a gift. God's powerful when you need to overcome the devil. God's the essence of all that is good, ultimately successful and glorious. God is it. We like to hang out with successful people. People are generous. People are loving. People are merciful. People are powerful. People are wise. How about God? Amen? Amen? Amen. God. Jesus. He's all of this. What is there not to love? I just want to close on this. What is there not to love in God? Name a thing not to love. I mean, what's, what's there not to love about God? You say, well, he's, I don't know, maybe somebody says, he judges the devil and throws the devil into hell. Actually, I think that's pretty good. He brings down dictators and, and crushes abortion and the abortion spirit and my anger and my sin and all that. Somebody say amen to that. Amen, Yeah. Crushing Kevin's sin? Amen. <laughs> a lot of you are saying, yeah, that would be good. But you, you know what I'm saying? What, what's, what is so bad about that is what I'm asking. So, so what's the negative here? What, what, is, what is there about God that we wouldn't like? Why would anybody not seek God? I, that's my question. Why would anybody in the right mind not seek his face, his presence, his approval, his mercy, and his salvation? Think about this, Children. Children, just for a moment, think about the best father in the world. I know that's your father. But even better. I mean, the very best father in the whole world. Never sins. You know, just great father. Tremendous father. Most blessed father. Most generous father. Gives you 60,000 gifts on your birthday. I mean, just this amazing father. Just imagine the best father in the world. Why would a boy turn away from the best father in the world? Why? Only one word. Rebellion. I mean, that's, that's a pretty rotten kid. Would you, would you admit, agree with me? That's, that's a rotten kid that would turn away from the best father in the world. Why? Rebellion. A love for that which is not wise and not merciful and not loving and not generous and not powerful and not so good. It's the wrong conception of the father as well. Uh, how many people just sit around and they think bad thoughts about other people? You know, I mean, sometimes maybe you've done that. You think bad thoughts about one of the nicest guys in the church, let's say. And you're like, yeah, he's probably a jerk at home. I don't know. So you just some, think some terrible thought about a nice person, kind of like me tripping my little brother. You know, he was such a nice guy, you know, and I tripped the nicest guy in my family. Seriously, my brother Eric is the nicest guy in our family. I tripped him and skinned up his whole face. That's what I did to him. So, and I know I've given you that testimony before and God's forgiven me he's forgiven me I thank God for all of that but but what is it it's it's the heart brothers and sisters it's the heart of pride it's 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 not realizing the father is gracious and merciful and wonderful it's it's the thought that I am this wonderful person that wants to get away with all this evil stuff and uh, the father might correct me my father's uh, you know too strict but I'm the God here. I'm the greatest guy in the world. It's just pride. It's rebellion. 
And then that leads to an attraction to lies and to the world and false promises and emptiness and vanity. And then he turns away from the nicest father in the world. That's, that's how it happens. That's how it happens. A rebellion in the heart, pride, not really wanting to repent, not really wanting to be humble and realizing I'm the bad guy here. That, that's the reason why people turn away from God. That's it. So brothers and sisters, let's just seek God with all our heart. Amen. Let's seek him with all our heart. Let's love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just love him with everything in us and, and serve him. And that means we, we love him with our will, with our strength, with all of our efforts. We're loving him with what we're doing in our lives as well. There are those who love him with their heart and their mind, but they don't want to obey him. Well, that doesn't make any sense. No, no, no. We, we, if we love him with our heart and our mind, we're going to obey him. We're going to serve him. And now there are five references to servants. We are the servants of God in verses 13 to 16. We serve God. It's our life. It's our identity, who we are. We're the servants of God. We are the recipients of God's amazing gifts. And we serve him and we love him. We want to serve him today and every day of our lives. And then the blessings that follow. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. That is those that don't want to seek God, don't want to serve God. My servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy in the heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief and spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name so that he will bless himself and the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. He who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. These are the blessings that attend us as we seek after God and then we serve him. That's it. We seek him, we love him, and we serve him. Those are the final words, children, in the notes. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, we would seek you. We would know you better. We would know your love for us. We would, we would be more attracted to you. We'd be more drawn into you. The, the, you're the ultimate of all goodness and greatness and mercifulness and power and wisdom, all these things. God, and, and, and mostly we see this in Jesus. Father, that we'd be more drawn in that we would seek you with all our heart and love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and want to serve you every day. Just throw our lives into the service of our God. Father, this is our heart's desire today. We know, God, that you bless us. You bless, you bless. You pour out blessings upon us far beyond anything. And your mercy, your forgiveness is already overwhelming to us. So we would serve you the rest of our days. That's our commitment this morning. That's it for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the table, I keep coming back to the exhortations that Brother Josh Wieso has given to us the last number of weeks in Hosea that God is so ready to show mercy. God, God is, can hardly wait to show mercy. This is the picture we receive throughout the scriptures. The fatherless find mercy with God. God says, I will love him freely who comes to me, seeks me. I will love him freely. Love that word. It's something to meditate on for the next week. Just the freely, 
the, the non-restrained, uh, open arms, uh, no caveats, no, no ifs, ands, buts, but just the free love of God poured out upon us. Now, what, 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 what is all of this but that God is approachable? God is approachable. God is seekable, especially through Jesus Christ. And I say especially through Jesus Christ because he's, in, in some respects, I mean, in many respects, it's hard for us to approach a holy God in that, you know, we are humans, we are fallible, we are sinners, he is divine, and yet Jesus becomes human for us. He becomes sin for us as well. So now he takes care of the problem of sin, and he is so approachable now, approachable as a human, approachable as one who became sin for us, approachable as one who took take care of the problem of sin for us. This is the approachability of God. We approach God through the approachability of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I got the picture of Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. I was thinking it would have been difficult to look at a serpent. I, I, I don't like to look at serpents. I don't like, I don't like snakes. I just don't like snakes. Some of you boys may disagree with me on that. We'll talk about that later. But, but to look at a snake, to look at a snake for my salvation, but to look at Jesus, that's different. Now, it's true. There's an analogy there. We won't go there right now. But Jesus, attractive. Look at Jesus. What do you see when you see Jesus? Why is he there? He loves us. He's given himself for us. We see his love. We see his mercy. We hear him. What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness. You hear him. You hear his voice. You see his arms outstretched on the cross. It's just a picture. We see his approachability. He's approachable. He says, I've loved you and given myself for you. I I am a sacrifice for you. This this is my body. Listen to the words again. We'll, We'll say them one more time as we come to the table this morning. This is my body that I have given for you. I've given my body for you. I have given my body. I have shed my blood. I have bled out my blood for you for the remission of your sins. That's attractive. That's approachable. What's there not to love, as I said this morning? So God has proven his eagerness to show us mercy. The Father's arms wide open, waiting for the sinner to repent and to seek his mercy and forgiveness. So, so what's left? He's called us. He's beckoned us with his hands. He's given us his son. What's left? For us to seek him. For us to run to him. For us to embrace it. For us to say amen to all of this. That's it. That's all. That's all, to receive it, to seek him at the table, to seek his presence, to seek him with all our hearts today, to reach out to him because he's reaching out to us. That's it. So not as hypocrites, not as half-hearted people, not as people who say, I've got to seek God because the pastor said I'm supposed to. You know, I mean, I've, I've got to love God. Because the pastor says, if you don't love God, then, you know, then, then, then. Does that make any sense? No, no, that, 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 that makes sense. No, no, to seek God is to be attracted to God. You don't force people together in a marital relationship or whatever. You don't do that kind of stuff. We seek God from our heart. Our whole heart is desirous of 
to seek after God. That's it. That's, that's all it is. It's a natural outflow of a heart that just wants to know more, wants to be with God more, wants to, to receive His favor and to celebrate His mercies. So just receive this morning. Receive His mercy. Receive His body given for you. Receive His blood that was shed for you. And receive it with joy. Listen to the last words of what we just read. Listen to this one more time. Isaiah 65. My servants shall eat. My servants shall drink. My servants shall rejoice. My servants shall sing for joy. Amen and amen. And let's do that now. Can we do that now? Let's do it now. Father God, thank you for the sacrifice of our Savior. Thank you, Father, that he is so approachable. You have been approachable through Jesus. He became man like us. He took upon himself our sins and took them to the cross for us. And now he opens up his arms, invites us to this table. And he says, take, eat, take, eat. Receive this. This is my body. Receive this. This is my blood. Father, that's the love of God. That's the generosity of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. No better manifestation. No better manifestation than this. Father God, oh, help us now by your Spirit to be drawn in, to be attracted to, to love you, to love your love, and to know your love for us. Father, now we pray your Spirit to be with us. Assure us we're the sons of God. Assure us now that we are the blood-bought children of God and we receive your mercy and your love. Oh God, we, 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 we seek you now. We seek you now. We seek you now. In Jesus' name, amen.